0: In today's episode, we will begin a discussion of Genesis chapter 48, and the whole theme of this chapter is that of mature faith. When we think of mature faith as Christians, we probably naturally think of the idea of sanctification, that work that the Lord is doing in us once we are saved. It begins at salvation and it continues through until the day the Lord calls us home. And we know from the book of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. So maturing faith really has to do with the idea of sanctification, and it applies to anybody who is living any time past their salvation, or at least uh, any Measurable time, I should say. Some people, I I only qualify it that way because some people do come to genuine saving faith at the end of their life. You know, one of the most prominent examples, obviously, would be the thief on the cross. Uh, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, he didn't have a lot of time for sanctification because he was already nailed to the cross and in the process of dying. And uh, that's something that we should be able to take into account. But uh, short of that, uh, if we're around for any length of time, our, our faith is going to mature. And so we see that happening in Genesis chapter 48. One of the questions that we might face then is, can we learn from our mistakes? What do you do with uh, mistakes? Uh, how do you respond to them? Do they produce change in your life? Are you teachable? or do you go back and repeat uh, them over and over again without ever learning? That's the real question. And so as we work through this chapter, we are governed by this idea that we need to strive to develop a mature faith. We wanna be growing in our faith. We're gonna look at uh, Jacob, who is Israel, and we're gonna ask some questions. Can Jacob change, or has he learned his lessons? And uh, I think that we will see that indeed change is possible. And when we've made a lot of mistakes, copious amounts, you know, we're going to have an evaluation of our life much like what we saw in the preceding chapter when he's before Pharaoh. Few and evil have been the days of my life. And he says that at 130, recognizing the mistakes that he's made, but he is maturing. And so we want to be the types of people who are also maturing in our faith and striving to develop that. So what are the characteristics of mature faith? Well, from this relatively short chapter, there are two characteristics of a mature faith. The first is this from verses 1 to 7, a mature faith develops confidence in the future from past blessings. So you're going to, it's going to change your outlook on the future because of what you've already seen and the things that you know. So this is kind of an accumulation of theology. The more we grow and then we have the benefit of hindsight to look back, the, the more we are able to have confidence going forward. So a mature faith develops confidence in the future from or because of past blessings Verses uh, one to two, let's go ahead and read. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. All right. Verses one to two, many believers have the greatest confidence near the end of their lives. So notice some of the things that come out here. Joseph was told. Interesting uh, use of language there. It's passive. Passive means that the action is being done to something rather than the, the person doing the action. Joseph is the person who's in view here, but instead of him doing something, he will in a minute, somebody else is doing something. So he was told passive, behold, your father is ill. Now, according to custom, uh, this isn't just a sickness from which he is going to recover. It appears that everybody knows that this, this is the final time. This is his final chapter. These are his last days. And so when that is known, according to custom, you're going to bring your children to such a person to receive a blessing. So he brings his sons to their grandfather to receive the blessing, and the text lists them in verse 1 as Manasseh and Ephraim. Then, interestingly, verse 2, we have another passive verb, it was told to Jacob, So we've got these people who are heralds, uh, messengers that are doing these things, and it's setting up somewhat of a buffer, if you will. Okay, Uh, so then we see Jacob, who's now called Israel. So this is interesting, verse 2. It was told to Jacob, and then Israel summoned his strength. Uh, We see that appositional use there. And we know that he's been given a new name. We still keep transitioning back and forth. These are not two people. We know Jacob is Israel and we recognize that. And since the time that God declared his name change, we've seen a lot of back and forth. But at these last days, he summons his strength and sat up in bed. It's the last hurrah. It's interesting as well when you see people going through the natural death process not talking about a, a calamitous unexpected event but you see them going through this um, in in their later years because of cancer old age whatever it is you will generally see in the last week or so of a person's life a rally where all of a sudden they'll have this turn and and a lot of people it's it's somewhat it's difficult to watch. Okay. If you don't know that it's coming and, you know, people are in a state of mourning, starting to, you know, accept the fact that a loved one is dying, you know, and they're, they're already starting the grieving process, but they're still holding out hope. Maybe they're going to get better. Right. And then they have this rally here a week, a week and a half, maybe 10 days before they die, something like that. And, it it appears that they are getting better for for a day. They're sitting up. They're having a great conversation. They're eating food again, and they haven't been eating food for a while. And you know, they're lucid and like, wow, they're taking a turn. They're coming back, and so all of a sudden, we start praying for that, and 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 then all of a sudden, that wears off. That rally and it's back and as bad, if not worse, than it was before. And usually, that will lead to the final days. Uh, but th- th- that may, as as we look back with the benefit of some hindsight, uh, anecdotally, statistically, from the medicine standpoint, just observational, and, and I say medicine, probably more from a hospice standpoint, uh, this is something that we have now observed and documented for you know a long, long time. So that may be what's going on here. He's summoning up his strength, sitting up in bed, having this this last uh, this last rally here. And so he has this confidence. uh, That's what we're, we're beginning to notice. Then as we move on to verses three and four, the strength of our end of life conviction is found in the promises and blessings of God in the past. So now he sits up in bed and he's going to have this conversation. What does he say, knowing that he's at the end of his life? Well, the strength of the end of life conviction is found in the promises and blessings of God in the past verses three and four. And Jacob said to Joseph, God almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So notice the focus on the past. He says, you know, I remember what the Lord has done, right? That's what he's saying. God almighty appeared to me, past tense, completed action in or at Luz in the land of Canaan. What did he do there? After he appeared to me, he blessed me and said, here's the blessing. Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now he qualifies that because he says in verse three there, it's in the land of Canaan. This is Luz in the land of Canaan. So when he's saying, I'm going to give this land to you, and the offspring after you for an everlasting possession, he's talking about the land of Canaan, not where they are now in Goshen in the land of Egypt. So he's remembering the past, and that's going to fuel his future, the promises of future blessings, right? It's found in the promises of the blessings of God in the past. What has God done? What has God said? He appeared to me at Luz. That was Genesis 28, verse 13 and 19. And then again in Genesis 35, 6 and 9, he blessed me, uh, and and we kind of work through that. Now, verses five to seven, the believer begins to understand the boundaries of God's blessings. So as he's had time to contemplate this in his life and his journey up to and Aaron and back and all of that, uh, he begins to understand that there are some boundaries to that. Uh, it's not just limitless. I mean, it could be because God is infinite, but he sets some boundaries as well. Verses five to seven, and now your two sons, Who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, When I came from Paden to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So what we see here is he begins to understand the boundaries of God's blessings. Your two sons are mine, he says, as Reuben and Simeon are. So Jacob passes on the double blessings of the birthright on to Joseph. They receive this special blessing because of Joseph's favor, which is derived from his favorite wife, Rachel. All of this begins to make sense now as he's calling, you know, as they arrive there and and, and we see that. He says, after them, you're going to have children. Anybody after Manasseh and Ephraim are going to be yours. And then he recounts the sorrow of Rachel who died in the land before they ever made it uh, fully there, uh, buried her there on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And just so we're clear, we're talking about the mother of Joseph and of course, Benjamin. And it's also interesting to note here, there's a switch in order. So in verse one, we have the birth order, Manasseh and Ephraim, oldest young, or older, younger, right? And then when Jacob slash Israel, uh, speaks to him in verse five. Uh, I came to you in Egypt, or the sons born you in the land of Egypt. Before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. How does he say it? Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. Ephraim and Manasseh. Wait a second. Back in verse one, it was Manasseh and Ephraim. We have another one of those things, and we'll see that we'll see that come out in the final blessing that goes to all of the sons. Uh, this is this is a interchange between Joseph and his father, and then in the next chapter we are going to observe all that he says to all of his sons in this final rally here. I do think that this is a good stopping point for this particular episode. I just want to come back to this main idea that governed all seven of the verses that we've looked at, and that is that a mature faith develops confidence in the future from past blessing. So uh, just remember, here's, I guess, the application. Is it so much that we understand now how Jacob approached that, which is what we just explained, but for us, uh, you and me who profess uh, faith in Christ, our confidence in the future has to do with what has been accomplished and what has been said in the past. Now, we could go really, really deep with that. And that's, you know, we, we, we could spend a long, long time talking about that. So, where do we go in the past? Well, my mind immediately goes to the cross of Calvary and the ministry of Jesus and all that he uh, accomplished there at Calvary, conquering uh, sin and death and the grave through his, you know, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, he conquered sin by taking the wrath of God in his own body. When he was nailed to the cross, uh, he bore God's wrath and then he died as a result of that because it's necessary for the death of, of the testator. You know, when we think about that, uh, borrowing from the, some of the language from Hebrews. So he had to die. He bore God's wrath in his body and then through his own power, He resurrected himself from the dead, and no one else needed to resurrect him. He did all that. We look back at that, and we look at what Jesus said about his own resurrection, his own suffering, and the promises of all those things, and we derive hope and confidence in the future because of those actions, and so wherever we find ourselves in life, whether we're at the end of life or we're facing tribulation or trial or, or any of those things, or we're somewhere in the middle, the point is, is that looking forward, we derive confidence for the future because of what has already been accomplished in the past and the blessings that we have obtained in Christ because of what he did in the past. As we look at the world around us, we know that he is going to be victorious. We know that this is all stemming from the fall, going all the way back to the beginning of the book. I mean, here we are almost at the end of the book. And at the beginning of the book, we find the record of the fall. Uh, the day that you eat of that, you will surely die, the Lord says. Sin enters in the world, death as a result of sin. Go back and read Romans chapter five. And we look at that and say, okay. Uh, Is this world just going to go on like this forever? The answer is no. How do we know that? Well, God told Adam and Eve at the beginning, actually when he was talking to the serpent initially, after all the blame shifting, and the woman said, the serpent, you know, is the one who came to me. God addresses the serpent first, then he addresses Eve, then he addresses Adam. But he goes back uh, to the serpent, and that's where we get the proto-gospel, right? The first hint of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, and that is a forecast for the cross yes but not just the cross you know you will bruise his heel he will he will crush your head you will bruise his heel well the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman is jesus at the cross of calvary but he also says that satan's head will be crushed well that part hasn't fully happened yet We are admonished in scripture, 1 Peter chapter 5, that we have an adversary who goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He has not had his head crushed yet. Now he is going to be locked away in the bottomless pit for a thousand years where he will not be able to go and do the things that he is doing currently in the earth. But then after that, that's still not the crushing of his head. After that He will be released from that thousand year prison and cast into the lake of fire, which was designed for him. That is the ultimate and final end of of Satan. Uh, Go back and read uh, uh, Revelation, sorry, I believe 19 and 20 uh, for, for further reference on those events. So we know what's coming in the future, and we know that that's. That hasn't happened yet, but we have confidence in those future events because we can look back on what Jesus has already said and done. We can look back on the entire word of God and see what God has said, what God has promised, and that gives us confidence in the future because of that. I hope that's an encouragement to you. It is to me. Uh, We're going to leave it there. We'll pick up our discussion of Genesis 48, starting in verse 8 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.